Well, hello again. I'm Matt Friend, the senior pastor at Bible Center. I'm excited for what God's doing in your heart, what he's doing in the life of our church. I want to start today by telling you a story about a woman who's had a huge impact on my life. Uh, her name is Esther. And Esther grew up just a couple of miles from here on Sandplant Road, near where some of you live, if you live down the corridor a little ways. And she grew up uh, going to Allen Creek Elementary School. She would walk about a mile and a half to school. It wasn't uphill and snowing both ways. Uh, but in the 1930s, life was much different than it is in 2018. Esther often told stories of growing up with her 12 brothers and sisters, having to take turns milking the cow, feeding the hogs, feeding the chickens, washing the, bathing the babies, feeding the babies, doing everything that you would do on a farm. Esther had life hard. Often things came hard for her. Nothing came easy. Uh, she fought every way she could through school to eventually she became the valedictorian of Washington District High School in 1947. And she thought she was marrying her sweetheart. Uh, but turns out shortly after they were married, she found out that he struggled uh, with alcoholism and uh, often would spend the money that he would make at a great job. But instead of spending it on his children, his five kids, he would spend it on himself. And so Esther had to go to work. To be able to feed her children, she sold encyclopedias and vacuum cleaners. And eventually, Esther went to college. She went to Morris Harvey College, what we know today as University of Charleston. And she would go to school in the mornings, and then she'd try to catch the bus. If she couldn't catch the bus, she would walk from UC down to the bridge, cross the bridge, and work in downtown Charleston in the afternoons, while her kids found their own way often to school and their own way home. Most nights after work, she caught the 10 p.m. bus from Charleston back to St. Albans, and she would get up the next morning and do it all over again. Esther was motivated by Christ. She was motivated by the glory of God. She wanted her children to grow up with a life uh, better than they were having under their father. She wanted her children to grow up and putting God first in their life. And she made a point almost every Sunday to have them in church there in St. Albans. Those who knew Esther knew how much she loved the Lord. They knew how much she loved to sing. Her children and her grandchildren would sometimes get embarrassed because in church, Esther would sing at the top of her lungs all the songs that she knew and even the songs she didn't know. We, there, her grandchildren watched her make change in the offering plate a time or two, which deeply embarrassed them. But we knew she was doing it out of a pure, out of a pure heart. Esther loved Hee Haw and the Grand Ole Opry. She loved to play Monopoly and she would bankroll her grandchildren, sliding money under the table until eventually she had no money left to play the game herself. And in 2007, Esther went home to be with the Lord. If you haven't already guessed, Esther is my grandma. Esther is my hero and a woman who had a profound impact on my life for multiple reasons. You see, growing up, watching Esther sing with all of her heart in church, at the time I thought it was cheesy, I thought it was silly, but now I know what she was doing. She was just going hard after God in the worship services at our little church near our hometown. I watched my grandma Esther pray time and time again for all of her children by name, for all of her grandchildren by name, and if she were still alive, she'd be praying for her great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. As a kid, Esther would set me up with a TV tray 
and give me an opportunity to preach to all my cousins and to her in her living room. She taught me how to take an offering, an indispensable skill for a pastor to have. I'm thinking about all the impact Esther had on my life. She would take notes. As a 14-year-old young man, I began to preach. Esther would buy me books, probably half the books in my library my grandma Esther bought me. And even though she's been gone for 10 years, I can say that to some great measure, I am who I am because of my grandma Esther's impact on our family. I was thinking this week, what, what would have happened had there been no Grandma Esther? What would have happened had she not made the impact on us that she did? Of course, the Lord is sovereign, but I know I would be different. My mom would be different. Our family would be different. Maybe my own children would be different. And so I want to ask you, what impact is God calling you to make as a woman? What impact is God calling you to make as a man or a woman, as a member, as an attender of Bible Center Church? What impact is he calling us to make by honoring the women in our midst? And what will we miss out if we don't honor women like Jesus did? Today we're going to look at several things. We're going to look at the world's view of women, Jesus' view of women, and then I'm going to close with a prayer for all the women in our church. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. Let me invite you to stand out of respect for the Bible. Luke chapter 8 and verse 1 as I read the first three verses. And let's look at how Jesus did ministry with women. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Shusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. First, it's helpful for us to acknowledge that the world has a low view of women. The world has a low view of women. Back in Jesus' day, women were seen as second-class citizens. There was a common prayer among Jewish men. It wasn't a prayer in the Bible, but it had developed through tradition, and the prayer went this way. Praised be to God that he did not create me a woman. A man could legally divorce his, his wife for almost any reason. However, in that day, a woman could not divorce her husband. While the study of the scriptures was important in early Jewish life, women were not allowed to study the sacred texts. Rabbi Eliezer from the first century teaching is noted for saying, rather should the word of the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, rather the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. This gives us a sense of the climate in which Jesus was ministering. It helps us make sense of Luke chapter 4 when, when Jesus begins to preach to his hometown and he mentions a widow from Lebanon, a widow from Sidon. And the, the people get so angry because one, he's talking about a woman, and two, he's talking about a Gentile. And they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. In Luke chapter 7, there's a woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. And the disciples ask him, do you not know what kind of woman you are letting touch you? 
In Luke chapter 8, all these references are in your notes in your bulletin, by the way. In Luke chapter 8, there is a woman that has an issue of blood for 12 years, a severe condition. And she touches Jesus, and she touches Jesus, she gets his attention, he stops, he looks, he loves her, he listens to her, and the disciples are appalled. How could you let a woman who's unclean touch you? In Luke chapter 18, Jesus points out how women were a nuisance in a court of law. And then in Luke chapter 20, Jesus speaks specifically to men. He speaks specifically to the religious leaders in verses 45 through 47. And Jesus said, beware of the men who teach the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues and at banquets. Yet they devour widows' houses And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This dishonoring of women wasn't just during Jesus' day, but we see it in the writings in the first century and in the second century. In the first century, I learned something this week, there was actually an office, an elected office. In English, it's translated women regulators. Women regulators, their sole job in the Mediterranean cities was to control women and make sure they didn't run shops or engage in other business. I found the kind of the, the source of the Salem witch trials goes back to a rabbinic tradition that said that most women practice witchcraft, if not in public, definitely in secret. Today around the world, women are still thought very little of. Definitely not to the degree of men on a whole. Women compose 70% of the world's poorest people, and women only own 1% of the world's titled land. The majority of women earn, on average, only three-fourths of the pay that men receive in the same jobs. Little girls in Afghanistan are attacked for the crime of simply going to school, and one-third of women will face abuse in their home, either the home where they grow up or the home in which they currently live. I'm thankful to raise my daughters in the United States of America. I'm thankful that my girls have certain inalienable rights. I love the United States and thank God for her. But sometimes it's easy for us to swim in water and forget what really is around us. Even though the United States is wonderful, there are still women who are being dishonored. More than 300,000 women are raped every year in the United States alone. 300,000. The porn industry's net worth is $97 billion dollars. This is enough money to feed at least 4.8 billion people a day. To put it in perspective, every year Hollywood creates 600 movies and they make $10 billion in profit. But in that same year, the porn industry makes 13,000 movies and $15 billion in profit. That's more than the NBA, that's more than the NFL and Major League Baseball combined. And I realize that there are women who get into that industry because it's their desire or their goal, but I have a hard time believing that some little girl grows up and wants to make that her life. 
In that world, uh, Mrs. McDonald will tell us, is all sorts of human trafficking or women that feel enslaved to that profession for they feel they can do nothing else with their life. This stuff happens in the United States, but it also even can happen in the name of religion. You know, I love my daughters. I love the women of our church. But even last night, I was reminded that in the name of religion, we can sometimes be hateful to people. I went to bed a little early. Early for me is about nine o'clock. So I went to bed about nine o'clock last night and, and I was gonna, knew I was going to get up early for this morning. And so about midnight, I'm hearing like this noise in the room next to me, right? I'm hearing like laughing and I don't know what was going on over there, but laughing and fun. And, and so come to find out, my daughters had decided to just hang out together in Katie's room, you know, at 1230 at night because that's normal, right? Just to hang out at 1230 at night. So I wake up. Now, now I wake up angry. Like I wake up mad. I didn't throw anything, but I woke up mad. And, and I roll out of bed and I tell Sarah, I said, what is going on over there? Don't they know I have to preach tomorrow? <laughs> this is last night. Sarah's like, yeah, honey, just be glad they're getting along. You know, sometimes in the name of doing good things, we can on, dishonor the people we love the most. And Jesus reminds us of that. He says, it's easy, especially for women, for us to dishonor them. We don't want to do that. But number two, Jesus stepped into this world. He leveled the playing field with a new kingdom and good news for everyone. Jesus leveled the playing field with a new kingdom and good news for everyone. Look with me in verse number one. It says, after this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been to hear Jesus in person? Farmers stop farming. Men and women lay down whatever work they're doing and they run to hear this man who's doing miracles. Now, sure, maybe some wanted to come because they knew he, he would feed them. He had done the miracle of the five loaves and the two fish. But whatever their reason, you got kids just excited to see this person that has become a rock star in Israel. They want to listen to the master teacher. What was he preaching? In verse 1, it says he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. When you think of the word good news, if you're taking notes, you can write down in the margin of your Bible uh, the word gospel. The good news is the gospel. Jesus was a gospel preacher. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel, there's multiple definitions, but it all points back to Jesus. The gospel is this good news that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And so Jesus was preaching that message, except he was preaching it ahead of time. So, of course, it hadn't happened yet, which is why Jesus constantly said, the Son of Man must die, and three days later he's going to rise from the grave. Jesus was preaching the gospel. He was calling people to believe that, to trust in him. He could save them. He could pay for their sins. They no longer had to go into the temple and offer sacrifice. He was going to be the sacrifice forever. And they could once for all be right with God. That was good news. But there's a nuance here in Luke chapter 8. He doesn't just preach the gospel, but the text says he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom 
of God. If you're taking notes, you can write down this. The kingdom of God is the day when God fixes the world. The kingdom of God is the day God fixes the world and sets it right. The day God fixes the world and sets it right. For thousands of years, the prophets had been declaring, there is coming a day that God is going to, he's going to break in on the world cataclysmically. He is going to break in in the world and set the world right once for all. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they often say that Jesus came and preached the kingdom of God. But if you compare it with the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John cuts the word kingdom of God out and it inserts everlasting life or eternal life. These terms eventually became used interchangeably. Now, Jesus no doubt was pointing to a physical kingdom when he physically one day returns to this earth. Geographically, politically, Jesus is going to rule the earth. But when he lived, he was saying, the kingdom of God is here. I'm launching it. I'm inaugurating it. When you believe in me, you receive entrance into the kingdom of God. In other words, every Christian, every true believer is in some way part of the kingdom of God. Now, if the kingdom of God means setting the world right, let's think for a minute. What did Jesus have to set right? What was wrong with the world that Jesus had to fix? We've already talked about a number of things that were wrong with their view of women, but it's much, much bigger than that. The world was a broken place. Go back in time with me to the beginning of time, whatever year that was. And think about how when God created Adam and Eve, he created them innocent. He created them perfect. He created them flourishing and whole in the Garden of Eden. Once in a while, someone will say, well, you know, back in the Garden of Eden, God made men to dominate women. It's just the way God created the world. Well, actually, you know, that's not true. There's nowhere in the Bible that teaches that God made men to dominate women. Now, I think everybody's awake. If you're taking notes, you can write down Genesis 2.18. The text that's been used on me in the hills and hollers of West Virginia at times by some well-meaning soul that's trying to prove that God made men to dominate women is Genesis 2.18. For it happened before Adam and Eve sinned, and in that verse it says that God created Eve to be a helper for Adam. Therefore, obviously, if God made Eve to be a helper, she was intended to be, I'm not going to say what I was about to say, get myself in trouble, but she was intended to be under Adam's domination. Well, actually, the word helper doesn't mean that at all. 30 times it's used in the Old Testament, and over 20 times it refers to God himself. It's a military term that means co-warrior. Often this word was used when it says, your God will fight for you. This is the word for helper. So you know over the years as tradition and and religion has evolved, you've got this view that somehow God made men to dominate women. But in the garden, they were co-warriors. They were co-lovers of God. Despite the sermons we've heard about the Garden of Eden, Eden was not a safe place. There were dangerous trees and the father of all monsters was hiding in the shadows. And God knew that Eve, Adam, needed a co-warrior in Eve. 
But we know that Adam and Eve chose to sin. If you ask the men whose fault it was, they'll say it was Eve's fault, just like Adam did. When God said, came down and said, what happened? He said, it was the woman thou gavest me. If you ask the women, some women would say, well, it was Adam's fault. He should have been the leader and should have protected Eve from giving in to Satan's temptation. Actually, the Bible tells us it was both of their faults. They both sinned, and as the result, Genesis 3.16 happened. And Genesis 3.16 says to the women, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In other words, God knew there was going to be brokenness in the relationship. Instead of being co-warriors, created equal in the sight of God, different, yes, for sure, but equal, now God knew instead of fighting against Satan, they were going to be fighting against themselves. Now, I'm sure all of you have no idea what that's like, but if you know somebody who's ever had an argument with his or her spouse, then you have a little idea of knowing what this might be like. God says we're going to fight with one another. We're going to try to dominate one another. But Jesus launches a new day. It's no coincidence that as Luke wrote the gospel, Luke didn't write the gospel line upon line based on how things happened, first, second, third, and fourth. But each of the gospel writers wrote with a theological point. They were trying to make a point. And so here in this passage, Luke writes in verse 1, a new day has dawned, good news is coming, a new kingdom is here, and by the way, Jesus is serving with women. It was no accident. It was no accident that in Luke chapter 1, God chose Mary to bring his son into the world. It was no accident in Luke 24, women were the first people to see Jesus after the resurrection. In Galatians 3.28 is probably the best verse of all. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So let's get the picture. Let's divide it up into three sections. You've got perfection, Adam and Eve, or maybe innocence is a better word. They were innocent. Then they sinned and they entered this second section of time where everything was broken and the world was broken. But God calls us now in this age of the church to do everything we can to model not brokenness, but to do everything we can to point back to that initial time when life was innocent and, and God says, you're a new creation in Christ. And so for the rest of the epistles, he tells us how to live in such a way that we can be billboards for the new creation. We're to point back to the beginning of time and forward to the great day when life will be restored as it was intended to be. Pastor Scott McKnight in his commentary writes this, but the good news story of the Bible is that the fall eventually gives way to new creation. The fallen can be reborn and recreated. Sadly, the church has for too often perpetuated the fall as a permanent condition. Perpetuating the fall entails to failing to restore creation conditions when it comes to male and female relationships. This is against both Jesus and Paul, who each read the Bible as a story that moves from creation oneness to new creation oneness.
In her book, Half the Church, Carolyn Custis James writes this, the community of God's people should be the epicenter of human flourishing where men and women are encouraged and supported in their efforts to develop and use the gifts God has given them. God never envisioned a world where his image bearers would do life in low gear, especially when suffering is rampant, people are lost, and there's so much kingdom work to do. He wants his daughters to thrive, to mature, to gain wisdom, to hone their gifts, to contribute in his vast purposes in our world. God created his daughters to be a kingdom-building force, to pay attention to what is happening, to take action and contribute to the world. That's the world we want for our daughters. That's the world you want for your daughters. And may God help us, may God free us, as those of us who are Appalachian or West Virginian, from any preconceived notions of thinking that somehow I'm superior to my wife or that somehow God loves me more than he loves my daughters. That's not gospel. That's law. That's broken. But God calls us to a new way of living. Jesus stepped into this world. And number three, I love what he does. He calls men and women to be equal ministry partners to be equal ministry partners. In verses two and three, this was revolutionary for Jesus's day. Look what he did. He had the 12 with him, verse one, but he also had some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. He had Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. He had Joanna, the wife of Shusa, the manager of Herod's household. He had Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I've grown up in church, gone to seminary, gone to Bible college. If you would have asked me before this week, paint a picture of Jesus traveling, doing ministry. I would have painted a picture of 13 dudes, Jesus and his 12 disciples. And that would be a good picture, but it wouldn't be an accurate picture. Somehow or another, as often as I've read the Bible, I've missed these three verses. There were women who traveled with Jesus too. It wasn't just men. Disciples come in two sexes, both male and female. And in this passage, it says there were a lot of people. Now, there were only 12 apostles, but there were a lot of disciples, both men and women. And God recognized, Jesus recognized their gifts. Heard the story this week of a helicopter that had saved 11 people and was flying over a large canyon. And the rope was starting to give way. And they were doing some calculations as they were hanging on the rope. And they realized that the rope was only built to hold 10 people, not 11. So coming to find out, there were 10 men and a woman hanging on the rope. And so one by one, each of them began to argue as they're hanging on to the rope why it should be them who are allowed to, to stay on the rope and why somebody else should let go. One man bragged about his deeds for the community. I should be allowed to hang on to the rope. Another man bragged about his children and how he is raising his children and how he deserved to hang on to the rope and not let go. Finally, the woman had her turn to talk about why she felt she should hang on to the rope and not be the 11th to let go. She gave a beautiful speech about how that women for years had been the infrastructure to society. 
about how men could be what they were because women were what they were. And she spoke of raising children and developing homes and and building economies. The speech was so moving that instantly all ten men felt moved to tears and they began to applaud. (laughs) Women are smart. I have no idea where that goes in the sermon, but it just worked right there. Jesus calls men and women to be equal ministry partners. And that day it was revolutionary for Jesus to be teaching women not just to let women be around, but actually to sit at his feet and learn. Who were these women? There were three. Mary Magdalene. It was Miriam of Magdala, a small village on the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus met Mary, she had seven demons. Jesus saved her. Jesus restored her. Jesus cast out the demons and she never got over it. She would later become a prominent disciple and leader of the wing of women in the early Christian movement. Most historians believe that she was to the women what Peter was to the men. Every time there's a list, it says Peter, James, John, etc. And every time there's a list of women, it says Mary Magdalene and it gives the list of the other women. Her age is never stated. It's possible she was a widow who had inherited a great wealth from her husband. It's possible that she had inherited it from her father. Maybe she was old, maybe she was young. But this woman was the first lady to see Jesus after he rose from the grave. It gives two other women. Not much is known about Joanna or Susanna. Joanna evidently had a husband with a high-powered job in Herod's cabinet. But either way, God used them to fund Jesus' ministry and to travel with him, no doubt doing untold what else for ministry's sake as they served and loved men, women, and children. A quick Google search of women in church history tells the story of women who funded movements, started revivals, built hospitals, founded schools, and changed the world. How many of you have heard of Dorothy Sayers? Have you heard of Dorothy Sayers? few of you have heard Beautiful, beautiful quote that really summarizes this text. Dorothy Sayers in her her, uh, essay, Are Women Human, wrote this. Perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this, like Jesus. There never has been such another. A prophet, a teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized who never made jokes about them, who took their questions and arguments seriously, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind, no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. Here's the main point. Let's be a church that loves and honors women as much as Jesus. Let's be a church that loves and honors women as much as Jesus. I was thinking this week about all the ministries that women are engaged in at Bible Center, even on our staff level. It was kind of mind-boggling to think. I'm excited. I was thrilled to think about we have a woman who's a communications director, director of city ministries, hospitality director, women's ministry director, worship service coordinator, school principal, early childhood director, graphic artist, executive assistants, financial office, care and counseling coordinators, and a host of women teachers. 
We have volunteer women who lead groups, who give announcements, who teach, who lead teams, who are on the global outreach committee, who serve in ways behind the scenes we may never know. Women on the school board, women on the benevolence committee, women who are worship leaders and musicians, and we're trying to get women to be ushers. A few of you volunteered. I'd love for after the service, about 50 of you to volunteer to join our men. Just a beautiful picture Not trying to prove any point, but to say, this is a picture of the gospel. We're men and women serving together. If you're a woman here in this message, one, I ask for your grace and your mercy for a male pastor preaching an entire series, an entire sermon to women. Pray for grace. But two, let me just encourage you to be the woman God has called you to be. If God's called you to serve his church, step up and serve and use your gifts. If the Lord's put a certain ministry on your heart for this city, even if nobody else gets involved, even if we don't even have the resources yet to get behind what you're doing, go serve our city. And let's be a church where men and women alike seek the Lord's will and not always have to run it through what the senior pastor wants or, or what somebody else may think. Let's be a church that just loves our neighbor and serves with all of our heart. Serve in prayer meetings. Give your ideas. Lead. Love. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are gifted. You belong. You matter. Before we close, I want to speak to the men. If you're a man, join me. And let's pray for and honoring and loving our women. Most of us think we're doing a great job. I think I'm doing a great job as a husband, as a father. But what would it look like for me to say, God, how can I honor the women in my life more? Teach your sons to honor women. Teach your daughters to respect themselves. See your wife as God's daughter, not an object that's just made for you, but as a true daughter of God. And let's celebrate in the many ways that God calls women to lead in our church and to love our city. The world has a very low view of women, but Jesus came and brought good news and a new kingdom. And he invites us to serve as brothers and sisters of the kingdom for the great king. Let me pray for the women in our church. Will you bow with me? Father, thank you so much for what you're doing at Bible Center And for these seven weeks to look at how there are people in Jesus' day and even our day that are viewed as lesser than. God, help us not to view anybody as lesser than, but help us to live, help us to lead, help us to love. Father, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus for the women of our church, strengthen them to live as ambassadors for your kingdom. Send them out to do your work of healing and serving and loving and reconciling and building. Use the women of our church to set the world right and paint pictures of justice every day. Fill them with peace that passes all understanding. Draw them into a community of friends so rich, so deep, so diverse that they'll disagree at times. They'll fight at times. But I pray they remain in fellowship anyway. Whether you call our women to bring wisdom to around the city to boardrooms or casseroles to tables or hope to hearts, help them know that they matter. Help them know that they count. Help them know they have worth and a voice 
as you've called them to be your daughters. I pray for the women of our church that they won't wait for validation from me or anybody else, but they'll draw their only value from Jesus. Give them the grace to speak, to teach, to mark exam papers, to organize, to stir up trouble where trouble is needed, and to create peace where peace is needed. For those who are married, help them love their husband. For those with kids, help them love their kids and grandkids. For those who are single, help them to love you above all else. For the girls who want to grow up faster than they should, give them the patience to wait. For those who've been widowed, give them the wisdom to trust for what's next. Help them see that they matter because you matter. Lord, give our women the grace to keep loving, to keep singing, to keep leading, to keep laughing, to keep praying, to keep teaching, to keep hoping. Whether they lead businesses or raise children or teach or cook or write or organize or decorate or wash or build or design or all of the above, may they do it for Jesus. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory, both now and forever and ever. Amen. Will you stand with me and let's sing as we conclude.